Normally, we would be entering that stretch of the year when there's only one thing that comes on my family's television at night. Baseball. Elizabeth and I don't really watch a lot of television, but from late March through at least the middle of October, there's a good chance that at night we'll be watching a Cubs game or a Braves game or just about any team's game. That means that any other shows we'd like to watch, shows that have been recommended to us by friends or family, shows that we might have caught a glimpse of, those shows have to wait until the World Series is over. Of course, though, baseball ends right when football is getting interesting. So really, the only time we try to watch a new show is in between the Super Bowl and the opening day. That is, between February and early March, which is to say, right now. A week or so ago, we finished our one show for this season, the first season of True Detective, but since it's become clear to us that baseball won't be starting anytime soon, we've decided to give something else a try. Perhaps you've seen the HBO miniseries Chernobyl. I figured that the middle of a pandemic was the perfect time to immerse ourselves in a fictionalized docudrama about nuclear fallout and government conspiracy, right? Now, we've only seen one episode. We watched Friday night. But even after one episode, it's already clear to us that the Soviet authorities' response to the nuclear crisis will mirror that of today's skeptics, those who would rather downplay the significance of COVID-19 than tell the world the difficult truth it needs to hear in order to mitigate the disease's terrible effects. Even if you haven't seen any of Chernobyl, you know, I'm sure, some of what happened. In that first episode, the nuclear plant's reactor core explodes. A violent shockwave rocks the community, and right after that, a fire erupts at the power plant. The only problem is that nuclear reactor cores don't explode. They melt down. So when plant workers report to their bosses that the core had exploded, their bosses respond by saying that those workers must be delusional. Reactor cores don't explode. They melt down. In order to get a clearer picture of what was happening, though, those bosses decided to send a different team of employees to get a look at the problem. But when those employees come back, marred by radiation and report that they saw with their own eyes an open-air reactor core fire where the core had exploded, the bosses again dismissed their reports as some sort of stress-induced fabrication. Later, another worker reports that he had seen some graphite from the core, fragments from the explosion amidst the rest of the rubble, but again, that report is rejected as a mistake. Even when one of the bosses is doubled over and vomiting because of radiation poisoning, still the truth cannot be accepted. And why? Because reactor cores don't explode. They melt down. Sometimes in life, disbelief like that is a choice. 
Sometimes we refuse to believe even what we have seen with our own eyes because we just will not accept that what we have seen is true. But other times, the truth is so astounding, so truly unbelievable that even if we wished to believe it, we couldn't. I think the question for us is whether we are willing to acknowledge why we won't or can't believe it. In John chapter 9, that really long gospel lesson appointed for today, when Jesus heals a man born blind, we come upon two irreconcilable truths. If Jesus was able to give sight to the blind man, he must be from God. Yet, if he ignored the religious laws about the Sabbath, he must not be from God. Now, when Jesus spat on the ground and made mud and spread it on the blind man's eyes so that he could be healed, Jesus broke the laws governing the Sabbath. That is irrefutable. But when he gave sight to a man who had been born blind, John tells us that he did something that had never been done before, something that only God could have made possible. So which is it? Is Jesus a sinner or is he a man of God? We tend to give the religious authorities a hard time, but if we give them at least a moment of understanding, I think we'll find that they had reason to be perplexed by that strange collision of truths. What's interesting and perhaps uh, worthy of criticism are the lengths to which those authorities go to try to explain away that irreconcilable collision. First, they asked whether they were dealing with the same person at all. He looks like the blind man, they said to one another, the one who used to sit here and beg, but maybe it's someone else. Maybe it's just someone who looks like him. The man kept saying to them, it's, it's me, it's me, I'm the man. But they couldn't understand how what they had seen could be possible. So then they started to ask questions about the nature of his blindness. If it really was the same man, maybe they were wrong about his condition. Maybe he wasn't actually born blind, but had become blind because of cataracts or some other injury. So they pulled his parents into the conversation is this your son, they asked, the one whom you say was born blind? If so, how is it that he's now able to see? But the parents didn't give them the answer that they wanted. Instead, all they said was, we know he is our son, and we know that he was born blind. But if you want to know how he's able to see, why don't you ask him yourselves? He's old enough to answer you. So they go to interrogate the man who had been born blind a second time. But this time, their confusion quickly becomes impatience. They begin to turn against the man who had been healed. Give glory to God, they demanded, using a religious formula that requires an honest response. Now, the man who had been healed was on trial. If someone was being dishonest, it must be him after all, he was born blind, and the religious authorities knew that a just God wouldn't let a child be born without his sight unless he or his parents 
had done or would do something wrong, it was easier for them to lay blame on the man who was the embodiment of sin than to try to answer those unanswerable questions about Jesus. It was easier for them to expel the source of their confusion than to live with ambiguity and the inexplicability of how God could possibly have been at work in that rebellious rabbi. So when that once blind man began to turn the inconsistencies back on his interrogators, they refused to listen to him and drove him out. It's easy for us to see the truth because we know who Jesus really is. We live in the light of the resurrection. Even in Lent, we know that after Jesus died on the cross on the third day, God vindicated him by raising him from the dead. In the resurrection, God shows us whose side Jesus is on. So even if we don't know how to explain what happened, we know the answer to that irreconcilable conundrum that the healing of the blind man represents. But I wonder whether we know how it is that we get to that point of knowing the right answer. Whose side is Jesus on? Even in our own day, we encounter a fresh version of that same irreconcilable conundrum. Either Jesus is God's son, the incarnate one, the sinless redeemer of the world, or Jesus is the radical rabbi who looks down on religious leaders and prefers the company of notorious sinners and social pariahs. Surely it can't be both. We know that God does not listen to sinners. We know that God does not dwell in sin. But we also know that Jesus spent his time hanging out with the ungodly people of his day. So which is it? Is Jesus really God among us? Or did he really enjoy spending his time with sinners? If we can't figure out how to make sense of that collision of truths, we'll never know who Jesus really is. There are lots of ways that Christians try to explain that paradox. Some find it easier to give up on the traditional understanding of Jesus as God incarnate. They like to think of him as a wise teacher who taught us how to love even the unlovable among us, but they don't have much use for the miracles or signs that point to Jesus' divinity, those supernatural feats of wonder that defy any scientific explanation. More often, though, Christians make sense of Jesus by conveniently forgetting his preference for the poor and the powerless and the sinful. After all, isn't it easier for us to identify with a God who works in powerful ways than with a God who stoops down to embrace the kind of people we'd rather not see or smell in our churches? So who is Jesus, really? The one in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell 
Or a prophet whose association with outcasts reminds us that we too must care for the poor. Of course, we know that the answer is both. But to get there, something has to give. And that something is us. We cannot know Jesus Christ if we separate God's power and God's humility. If we divorce God's majesty and God's emptiness. Jesus doesn't just reach out to teach us about God. He shows us God. He brings God to us and us to God. In Jesus' love for sinners, we see God's love for sinners. In Jesus' preference for the poor and the marginalized, we see God's preference for the same. To see that, though, requires something impossible. It requires a change within us that we cannot accomplish on our own. It means leaving behind everything we've ever known about holiness and goodness and rightness in order to believe a truth about God that we cannot believe even if we want to, even if we see it with our own eyes. To see what God would show us, we must become blind. To live in that truth, we must die with Christ and be raised by God into new life. After all, that's what it means to be a Christian. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.